0: Welcome to Headlines, this is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we are going to be talking about living the dream... Not the reality, which means living the dream and spending beyond our means. People spend oftentimes based on the dreams that they have, the desires they have, but not based on the reality of their financial ability. And we are going to be talking about halachic, hashkufic, and psychological aspects of what is so common in society. I just didn't want to mention from the beginning that this uh, topic was actually inspired by a listener of headlines. Somebody sent us in a voicemail after hearing a show that I did little bit uh a little bit back talking about plans for Parnassa. Should yeshiva bachers have a plan for Parnassa? And he called up, left a message, and I wanted to actually get more detail on the message he uh, he left. And I gave him a call. He sounded like a very interesting and kind person. So I gave him a call to discuss. And he said as follows, you covered a plan for Parnassa, that is for people who are bachrim, avreichim, and yeshiva. Should they have a plan for Parnassa? And a while back, you also covered lavish living, the big spenders, the big rollers who are incredibly, incredibly wealthy, but you missed everyone in between. And he did say, correct, plan for a Parnas, I am in Avrech. It's tough to end the month off and uh, to be in the black, not in the red. But at least I'm not laden with debt. There are so many people out there that are spending and spending and they have so much debt and you need to have a show that addresses the vast majority of people in there who have income. But they are spending even more expensive cars and uh, very high standards of living that they can't afford. How about... A show on them. So that's what we're going to be doing today. Why do people spend when they can't afford it? Is it Mutter to do so? And what is the concept of keeping up with the Joneses? We'll talk about keeping up with the Coens or the Levis, keeping up with uh, with the, the Jewish name, and uh, we'll talk about uh, what should be spent on, what should not be spent on, and is it a problem halachically flaunting your wealth? Or actually, we're talking about perceived wealth, because it's not real wealth. It's based on debt. Posting on social media, is that a problem causing? other people to be jealous when you post things and uh, how do we raise kids without their thinking that they are underprivileged. We'll also talk about the wealthy should they be spending, or should they also limit their spending? To talk about all these topics, we are going to have four fabulous guests on, really four amazing uh, individuals on that have a lot to share. We are going to be starting off with Rabbi Yitzhak Berkovitz, who is the Rosh Yeshiva of Eishatari. has a lot of uh, great insights to share with us. Then we'll be speaking as well with Rabbi Dr. Zev Wiener. He is a psychiatrist, a medical doctor, a Rav Amagad Shir, And we'll be talking about both halachic and hashkafic. Also, psychological uh, consequences of spending. Why do people spend and the like. Then we will speak with the renowned Rabbi Naftali Horowitz, who likes to be known as Naftali Horowitz, the managing director at Morgan Stanley. So many insights into the financial side of things. And then we will end off with Professor Michael Norton. He is a professor at Harvard. Harvard Business School. His focus is on spending and happiness. He has written extensively on the topic, and we will get his insights as well. So just to get back to the individual that said, you have to cover this, you have to cover this topic, spending. People spend so much, but they can't afford it. So we are now coming off of Shavuos, and we have an obvious connection to Shavuos. The Torah was given on Ar Sinai. It was not given, as it's discussed in the Amedrish, to Har Tavor and Har Carmel. They said, give it on us. And a Kaddish Baruch who chose Har I based on its lowliness based on its humility it wasn't a fancy hill it wasn't a high hill it wasn't an agri- arrogant hill but simple simplicity lowliness humility and uh, that could have a play into the concepts that we talked about it's not spending too much not showing too much not uh, publicizing too much that is going to be all covered in Mir Cheshem today I actually saw an interesting article recently that uh, there was an interview of Charlie Munger Charlie Munger is Warren Buffett's business partner Warren Buffett, one of the most successful investors of all time, and his uh, second-in-command, who is nowhere near as well-known, he had some very amazing quotes that are very relevant for us. He says as follows, the world is not driven by greed, it's driven by envy. And I thought that was very interesting. I had to think about that. Greed seems to be something that's internal. Greed, I want more, I want more, as opposed to driven by envy. Envy is, I see somebody else has, and I want like that person. And he continues, that he doesn't care whatsoever. He himself talking about himself, what somebody else has, but other people are j- driven crazy by it. So many people, they look at what or others have and that's what they want and it increases their desires because they look at others. And he has an interesting insight. He says, not only is envy a sin but it could be the worst sin of all. Why? I'm gonna quote him. Envy is a really stupid sin because it's the only one you could never possibly have any fun at. There's a lot of pain, And no fun. Why would you want to get on that trolley? And in addition, another quote from him, he says as follows, the fact that everybody's five times better off than they used to be. They take that for granted. We have an unbelievably high standard of living. All they think about is somebody else has more now, and it's not fair that they should have it, and they don't. So we should really uh, look backward a few generations, and whatever we have is so much more. Everyone, whatever we have is so much more than anyone has had in the past. So the problem is envy, not greed, but envy looking at what other people have. I actually uh, remember hearing from Rob Gershon Best. He said it in a beautiful way. I don't remember the exact language, but he said so often when it comes to materialism, people typically at those look at those who are more wealthy. So when it comes to money, I look at people who have more and we're jealous. But when it comes to Ruchnius, we're not looking at people who have more. We look at people who have less. We look at people who are less observant and we feel great about who we are. I'm fromer than they are. I'm doing great. And uh, in fact, we should be reversing that and when it comes to uh, money we should be looking at people who have less and thinking Baruch Hashem I have so much and when, when it comes to Ruchnias we should be looking at people who have so much more and said, I want to be like them don't look at people who have less when it comes to Ruchnias look up when it comes to Gashmias look at people who have less than we do this a uh, little bit relates um, there's politics going on unfortunately in, in Israel right now I'm not going to really talk about politics per se but I saw an interesting uh, quotation that does relate to our topic. It was by a uh, non-observant, probably more leftist uh, reporter. But the reporter was looking at some of the incitement against Haredim in Israel. And there are a number of claims uh, about Haredim, that they're extorting money, talking about the budget, uh, that they're extorting money, and they're taking money, and they're, they're bloodsuckers, all these terrible things. And uh, she, she wrote a quote as follows. The Haredim don't extort money. She actually disagreed with those claims against the Haredim and said it's a terrible thing that people are saying. Well, obviously, it's a terrible thing. And she said as follows, the Haredim don't extort money. Most of them live with extraordinary modesty by choice and are happy with their lot in a way that can only be envied. Pleasure trips abroad don't interest them, and neither do luxury restaurants and shopping trips. And she goes on to say, you can debate and criticize the issue around productivity and sharing the burden. Okay, let's put that aside. That's not the claim against the Haredim right now. She continues, but extortion and greed, like you accuse them of here, no and no. Something definitely to be learned from at the standard of living that people are of. They have happy in certain places, they're happy in certain places. They're really not happy. The Mishnah actually addresses this as uh, based on a Shulchan Arach. In Hilchus Beis HaKnesset, Kufnu Kufnun Vav, the Shulchan Aruch is uh, talking about something a little bit related, but not really related. He says you should go to davin and after you go to davening, uh, you go to work, you're going to go earn a parnasa, but what you do is you have to learn before, you have to be kovei, etim lator, etc. So the Mishnah Breh, on the statement of the Shulchan Aruch, yelech go, you're going to go to business, you're going to work, and he says as follows, that you can't let it get out of control you have to be in the middle course in the middle of the road Derech HaMitzuah you can't be too stingy you also can't spend too much. This is the Mishnah Bruin in Kufnun Vav. And then he says in Katan Bez as follows, You have to earn enough for your parnasah. You have to earn enough of your needs. However, the problem is the Yitzhara will oftentimes entice us, convincing us that we need to put in more efforts and that we need more. If you need more, you have to put in more efforts. And says the Mishnah Bruin as follows, well, You have to think about it seriously. You have to look internally and invest investigate, what do I really need? What is the need for me? Those things I can't go without, that's what I have to work on. I have to, uh, I have to work hard and I have to earn money for that. But things that are in excess of that, we have to just realize it's not... Necessary, it's not necessary. So, the question is, what's the barometer that we use for something like this? And the Sharatseon, the mission board in the Sharatseon, actually gives us the barometer. How do we test if something is really necessary and I should put in the effort and I should work for it, or it's not necessary and I should not put in the effort? And he says it's very powerful. Imagine, imagine that you have to support somebody else because if we're thinking about ourselves he says the Yitzhar is telling us this is a need we need it we need it and it's really not necessary so how do I differentiate between what I need and I don't he says as follows imagine you have to supply the needs of somebody else you have a friend and he doesn't have an income and it's your responsibility to buy him what he needs clothing and food and the like based on his position in life it's not going to be you, you just have to give him food and water based on who he is and where he lives the fi erho what are you going to buy for him? And if it's something that you would buy for a third party because you're responsible in supporting them, then buy it for yourself. But it's not something, if you wouldn't spend that money on somebody else when you're responsible for supporting them, then don't spend it on yourself. That's an interesting insight with the Sharetzion, and the Bura, the Chavetz Chaim in, in the Zion. How should we know what's a barometer, what's a test, what should we spend on, and what should we not spend on? I just do want to have a quick vort on, uh, on on Parshas Naso in Eretz Show where uh, past Parshas Naso in Chutzarts uh, Parshas Naso is the Parsha of the Week so uh, it talks about if somebody uh, commits theft from a Jew so there's a way to make amends and you have to uh, you have to confess the sin and you have to pay back etc. various things that are cons- required and it says in the Pasuk Viz you have to have a vidu, you have to confess your sin and you actually have to give back what was stolen and I saw a nice uh, interesting insight it says when it comes to the confession, Vizvadu, that is in plural tense. Plural tense, the community, Vidoi, it has to be done, multiple people, but when it comes to giving back the stolen item, it says it in single tense, the if you have to give it back, and the question is why? And I saw one explanation, it says when it comes to a Vidoi, when it comes to admitting somebody does something wrong, when it comes to saying something, everyone can say something, people can say, I made a mistake, sorry, oftentimes people don't, but, uh, But we can say it It doesn't cost anything to say something. So that's why it says it in plural tense when it comes to the confession part of making amends. Plural tense. Many people can do it. However, when it comes to the heishi, when it comes to paying back, coming out of pocket, really doing a real tshuva, taking an action, then it only has it in single tense because very few people are able to take action that step. And I thought that was a very interesting insight. We are going to be talking about values and spending, what should be spent on and not. And this is a very difficult topic. It's very difficult to implement because we are so used to spending, many people, not everyone, but so many people are used to spending at a level. And to make it change is very difficult. And this is one of those topics that uh, is discussed a little bit. It should be discussed a lot more. But uh, ultimately, what we're seeing from this uh, Dvar you have the v Many people can say, vidoy, but talk is cheap, they say, right? We can't be all talk. We need some action. And hopefully, hopefully, uh, this will inspire. We'll start inspiring some changes in our spending habits and klal Yisrael. Before we go to our guest, let's hear the riddle of the week. This week's riddle is based on Parshas naso Parshas naso is uh, the partial of the Week and Chutzleretz and uh, Eretz we were ahead. And it says as follows, Yisa HaShem Pana Ve'elech will show you favoritism. And that's the Bruch of the Kohanim. The Kohanim are giving the Kalal that a Kaddish Baruch Hu should show us favor. And the Gemara in Brachos says as follows that the Malach Asharis, the angels, asked HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you're showing favoritism to Kalal But doesn't your Torah say you're not somebody who shows favoritism? It says explicitly, that you don't show favoritism. So, on the one hand, it says you don't show favoritism. And here, the Baruch of the Qanim is, it says, that the uh, Kaddish Baruch Hu should show you favoritism. So, a Kaddish Baruch Hu answers back in a cryptic way. And he says, How can I not show favoritism to Kla Yisrael? And the Torah it says, when it comes to the mitzvah at Birkas Amazon, Vachalta Vesavato Virachta, eat. Be satiated and say a bracha. Say birkas So the standard is: When do we say birkas ha-mazon? When we're satiated. But Hakadosh Baruch Hu says, How can I not show them favoritism? They're so strict on the mitzvah of birkas ha-mazon, that they are so medactic that even if it's just a kazayas, even if it's just the size of an olive, the bread that they eat, or just the size of a kabetzah, the size of an egg, they still are saying birkas hamazon. So based on that, the question is as follows. What does that mean that they are strict, even if it's a kazayas or a kabetzah? Why does it just say a kazayas? Why didn't it just say a kabetzah? And it's talking about being strict. It should just say the smaller sheer, kazayas. Why does it say both kazayas and a kabetzah? And more fundamentally, why is that the reason that a Kaddish Baruch is showing us favoritism.
1: If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700.
0: In England, it's 44, I think that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's 02372-0304. And now let's go to our guests. Joining us now is Rabbi Yitzchak Berkovitz. Rabbi Berkovitz is a renowned Poseg. He is the Rosh Yeshiva of Torah. He is the founder and Rosh Kolol of the Jerusalem Kolol and so much more. Rabbi Berkovitz, thank you so much for joining us.
2: You're welcome. Great being part of this.
0: Thank you so much. So Rabbi Berkovitz, let me frame our conversation. Uh, I, I've done shows on the high rollers spending tons of money because they have tons of money. And I recently did a show on Yeshiva Bacher, should they have a plan for Parnassa? And somebody sent in a comment to headline saying, you've done the uh, the high end and the low end, at least financially, but you missed the middle. You missed the middle, and the middle is not a typical 10%, 20% in the middle, but it's probably about 95% in the middle. We're talking about basically you missed everyone was the comment. So that is our conversation today. Let's talk about everyone else, which is, means let's talk about everyone. So, why don't we start out with a basic question. Is there a problem spending on things that are not necessities when you can't afford them? Because we apparently have a little bit about that going on nowadays. We're coming off of Pesach and Pesach programs and people uh, see other people spending and they want to spend as well. So, is that problematic uh, spending when you can't afford on things that aren't basic necessities?
2: First of all, the Pasuk says, which literally means there will absolutely not be a poor man amongst you. Chazal were obviously bothered by the fact that there's a Pasuk that says the opposite. It says, There will never be a situation where there'll be nobody to help. Which, by the way, that's such a beautiful, the Torah has to reassure the Jew, don't worry, never will there be a situation where there's no one to help. You know, the Jew, the Jew may feel someday, you know, the world will attain perfection. What am I going to do? Where's, where's going to be room for chesed? Mashiach going to come. We're not going to be able to do chesed. Everyone's going to be prosperous. Everyone, everyone's going to be... are going to have everything they need. How are we going to be able to help them? Hashem guarantees us. There are always going to be ways that we're going to be able to help people. But basically, the Torah says, There will always be someone poor. Is the Pasuk really promising? There won't be. Chazal. Tell us that that's not the meaning of the pasik Efes kilo yevbecha evyorg is a commandment. Absolutely, don't make yourself poor. One does not have the right to put himself in a position where others are going to end up having to bail him out. You're not allowed to make yourself poor. Included in that is overspending. The Chavaz Chaim talks extensively about this. Including that is, of course, borrowing when you don't know how you're going to pay back. The Chavetz Chaim is in Amas Chesed stresses very much how osur that is. You know, people amass they amass debt. I'm not talking about the the uh, you know the businessmen's debt where debt is a, is is the way you do business. You know, if the if the price of money, if the cost of money is less than what you can make on it, then that's the way you, that's the way you make money. <laughs> I'm talking about us regular people where we borrow because we don't have, and we're not making money out of the money we borrow. You cannot borrow unless you know how you're going to pay back. So, A, it is wrong to live above your means, and B, it is us it is is absolutely us to borrow unless you know how you're going to pay back.
0: Okay, so that, that is on the spending. Well, let, let's say either somebody has funds, or more common is that they don't have the funds, they've entered into the debt, they violated the yes, the yes, sir. And now oftentimes people feel the desire, the need to either publicize it or flaunt it. And it can come in various versions. It could be that the item themselves, the item that they bought, they want to show it off, they bought a fancy car, they have fancy clothing, a fancy uh, bag for the women, a fancy set of shoes that can cost $1,000 or something like that. So, we can have the item itself that we are either publicizing or we could say maybe we're flaunting and is that a problem and maybe we divide up between somebody who has actual wealth and somebody who has perceived wealth because we're talking more about the people now who have perceived wealth, they've entered into debt, that credit card uh, debt is, is private. No one sees that. They don't uh, publicize that but the items that they use and the vacations, etc., they publicize those. So is that a problem, actual wealth or publicizing perceived wealth based on the incurrence of debt?
2: So like this, On the one hand, we don't take people's eyes out. That's a simple beta on You know, why make everyone feel like what they don't have? But it is understood that someone who can afford it, that someone who can afford it is living like a pauper. Something's not right. You know, Hashem blessed him. Come on, enjoy it. Enjoy it. Someone who can afford it, that doesn't mean that you have to have every last luxury that exists. But what it does mean is at least, at least live a life that's appropriate for your income. Um, of course, there are exceptions of people who just live for, for, for the seabird. Um, I was speaking to the wife of, of, of a certain very big Baal Tzedakah, and she asks me, why do we fly economy? My husband can buy the airline." And I turn to him and he says, everything I make goes to tzedakah other than my basic needs. Why should I travel, even business, forget about first class, even business, at the expense of someone who doesn't have food for Shabbos? Wow. That's an exception. You know, people like that we write books about. That's an exception. If you can afford it live a nice lifestyle, live a comfortable lifestyle? Should you constantly be climbing and spending more and more and more money on things that you never knew you needed? No, that's off. Of course, that's off. The bigger question is with regard to someone who has perceived wealth. We find in the Gemara the story of, of, uh, of, of Hillel, Hillel Zakin, where there was an Ani ben Tovim, there was someone who was once wealthy and lost his wealth. And uh, uh, Hillel, you know, took up a collection. In fact, he got got money to to, uh, to get the person everything he needed, including Susler Kovolov. He got him a horse because this man was accustomed to, to having a horse. He couldn't find this Eved Larutz Lefanov. This person always had an, a, a a someone running out and announcing his coming and be, being there to be able to to take care of his, all his needs. Hill apparently was unsuccessful in raising this, so Hillel himself decided to serve as the Eved Larutz Lefanov. He was the one that actually did that. Now, the greatness of this Gemara was, of course, that Hilda was, was the symbol. He is the Semel of poverty in Chal Yisrael. Oni Kehillel, that even though, you know, the poorest man in the Jewish nation, he was a wood chopper by, by profession. Yeah, he became the Nasi. Um, although he is the Semel of poverty, he was able to understand the, the heart of an Oni ben Tovin, someone who lost his wealth. Which means that the Gemara is telling us that we have an obligation, certainly at the, at the initial stages, to provide this person with a standard of living that he was accustomed to. Nobody is expected to fall overnight. If someone actually had means, he's no longer there. For the sake of just his, his own, I don't, I don't know, his sanity or, or just maintaining his dignity, We have to allow him to fall slowly, which allows him to spend money he doesn't have. And even is Machayev the Tzibar to help him, obviously, without him knowing about it or without too many people knowing about it, to continue to feed the lifestyle he had, at least in the initial stages, because he can be totally broken. You know, there are people that lose their wealth. They go out of their minds, Uh, people that, I mean, really go into depression we have to allow the person to be able to maintain his former lifestyle at least until he's able to come back to his senses become accustomed to this new situation and you know find himself find himself comfortable in, in, a, in, a, in a in a in a lower lower standard of living um but until that point until that but not to go for the rest of his life that way that's not right just because he was once rich so forever he's going to live that way no but we understand that he's got to come down slowly and we've got to be there for him. Certainly, he's allowed to borrow. He's got to do it in a way that at least somebody's going to help him pay back. <laughs> you can't just borrow money and, and be in debt forever.
0: Uh-huh. So, when, when it comes to somebody publicizing, and uh, it could be maybe the most extreme example nowadays is on social media. Um,
2: you know, that, that's, that's, that's a, I mean, listen, it's a culture that's really alien to us. The whole concept of horror. You know, on the one hand, is it real? Is it non-real? I would say it's as, a as dover push it. It depends whose fault it is. If you're a sensitive human being, and there's, and because of that, you are hurt by everybody else's success. I shouldn't say sensitive. They're, they're, that's too kind of a word. You're somebody that really envies everybody, or or in the case of someone who really, really if there's something he doesn't have, and he sees others have it, And it's very painful for him. So if they're not sensitive to him, they may deserve eye and horror. Certainly, if you enjoy taking people's eyes out, you deserve deserve the eye and horror. Don't look for Trump. So don't look to publicize things and certainly
0: not to fund things. But, but I want to apply that to the very wealthy person. I know that we're not talking about them on this show. We've talked about them before. But that that individual that was meeting with you, that uh, he was flying coach. So, he's being careful. He's being careful. And, and I think that it's it's a fairly amazing thing that he feels in a Christ, first to the Anim, that he gave give it to Tzedakah. But also, I think he's setting a standard and he's being an example for other people and if we would apply that, I'm sure he doesn't have an overly lavish wedding and bar mitzvah. So somebody who is very wealthy wealthy, feel an achrayist to others that he knows there is the concept of being like the uh, Joneses, being following suit like other people and you set a standard and other people want to achieve that standard and people that can't afford that standard want to achieve that standard. So should somebody of that status feel an achrayist, at least on a Ben Adam Lechavero level to say, maybe we should lower the standards and I don't want to cause other people to feel that they have to maintain the standards that I may be setting for others.
2: Yeah. And I mean, there's definitely something to consider. It's definitely something to consider because one does know that the more he pushes, the more people are going to have to try to keep up with him and uh, not everyone's going to make it. Sure. sure. That's a consideration. That's a, a simple bit. It's a, a straightforward bit. To the extent, you know, for the extent of, of living simply when you can afford something much more, that's an exception. That's not the rule. I don't know if that is ex- that is expected of an only Right.
0: So w- when we had the conversation with the husband and wife and she was wondering, why aren't we flying more comfortably on the plane? And he says, we're sticking with uh, coach. So when you have a disagreement on finances, and this can happen quite often, because I understand one of the, if not the main cause of Shalom Bais issues his finances. So when you have a disagreement with the husband and wife, and how would you be Mahriya something like that? Did they have a disagreement by, by the way in front of you or she was just lamenting, I'd prefer to be a little bit more comfortable?
2: It, it, it was very hard for me to understand. She's proud of him. Come on. She's very proud of him. So am I. So am I. <laughs> she's, I mean, she's very proud of me. And she, she worships him. I mean, you know, it's just that, that she feels that he she would like you know she would like a a, a a little a little bit more of a luxurious like, They have a nice house. They have a very nice house, very nice house. It's not ostentatious, but he's very nice. Um, the Gemara says uh, that, that with regard to ones why and Rashi Rashi very clearly learns that machabda is referring to money. Mahabda means giving her money for clothes, clothes her. On a higher level than you clothe yourself, Um, the way the way it it works obviously is dependent on the personalities. It's very difficult to give rules when it comes to shalom bias. The the rule of shalom bias is every husband has the responsibility to be sensitive to whom he's married to and what her real needs are, and if he can possibly cater to them, he carries full responsibility. The ksuba is very one-sided. A husband is fully responsible for the physical and emotional well-being of his wife. He accepts that. You know, I would hope that a wife feels that she's got to take care of her husband as well. But face it, the document says, and the him that we find in Chazal are all one-sided. He is responsible for all the, things. The, the the ksuba is one-sided. The only thing a wife to, a wife agrees to in the ksuba is to marry the husband. That's the only that the, the one sentence in the whole ksuba that, with, with, with the, where the wife is saying anything. Everything else is the husband pledging you know, beginning with respecting her. Uh, Now, uh, um, a husband is fully responsible. So how that's going to pan out? Of course, it can be complicated. Every situation is different, but a husband must be sensitive to his wife's real needs. Now, the problem is that these things are so subjective and it's so easy for a husband to decide he knows better than his wife what she really needs. You can call it controlling. You, can, you, you know, there are all kinds of words for that today. Listen, you got to use your brains. And if things aren't working out, you have to use someone else's brains. Uh, get some help. Get some help. Something has to be worked out. A Husband has to be sensitive to amazing his wife. He cannot suppress his wife. He cannot deny her a lifestyle. He didn't. If she comes from a wealthy family, even if he's not, he's got to find some way to be able to provide for her on the level she was used to when she was growing up. Allah is that uh, she's of any She goes up in standard if her if his standard is higher than what she grew up with, but she doesn't go down if his standard is lower. You you, you got to know that. As somebody becomes more wealthy, there has to be a very clear understanding between husband and wife how they're going to live.
0: Right, and especially if they don't have the means to afford things. Now, in
2: terms of living above means, now it, it's very difficult, you know, to break the news to one's wife that you know, that that we really can't afford to buy what you just bought. Um, uh, you know, it's very difficult. Maybe the two of them can work out uh, what they're going to give up for that. You know, it could be, or I'll make an exception, but please don't do it again. Uh, um, but really, it's so difficult to give, you're dealing with personality and people are different. The important thing is, come on, be a sensitive human being, be a man and be a good husband. <laughs> and with wives, you know, on the, on the other side, you know, don't overburden your husband with things that, that you know are difficult for him. You don't want him to spend, you know, to spend so much of 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 of, of his life and his time um, earning more money only to feed whatever it is that you consider your your you know your financial needs.
0: Right. This is a, this is a very uh, sensitive issue.
2: It's very sensitive. It's very personal, and and you know, just to, to get up there and tell everyone what to do doesn't work. Right, right, right. So, so when it comes to
0: publicizing, flaunting, we've been talking about uh, flaunting, publicizing the items that you buy or putting it on social media, obviously, not a wise thing to do and it can certainly bring on an eye and horror at a minimum and a lack of- a- An eye in
2: horror and causing a lot of people, causing a lot of people either either envy because they don't have it um, or, or equally as bad uh, is going to get them to spend money they don't have.
0: Right. So, right. None of that is good. Now, how about if the individual is spending money, but in this instance, spending it on sedaka, but the motivation is to enhance his reputation, to enhance his social prestige. It could be to have a plaque. Now, obviously, we're not going to talk about Torah because we'll take the money. We need the money. It's an amazing institution. Whatever your motivation is, give it to Torah. But, uh, leaving that aside if somebody is motivated by that does that take away a little bit or a, a good portion of the giving of the tzedakah or is the it mitzvah it, it
2: does take away but any time a jew benefits from you you get scar we learned that from the mitzvah of shikha the what what did you do you forgot it <laughs> don't take it there's a lot of taking it but what what was the mitzvah you fulfilled the fact that another Jew got something that he needed from you, you get z'chah. I get love that. that analogy.
0: Of shichah, you didn't even intend it.
2: Right.
0: Yeah. You're like, intending it. You just have
2: the bathroom. Back, back we, we learn out of shichah that if a Jew benefits from you, you get stuck. Obviously, there are so many levels in z'chah. There are so many levels of kabban, there are so many levels of how to go about it. But bottom line, a Jew benefits from you, you've done z'chah. The reason to publicize your giving staka is really either for the sake of encouraging others, inspiring others, which is a wonderful thing. That's one. Um, the other one is an uh, ilunishmas. We want to, you want to honor you want to you want to honor someone, whether someone deceased or someone that's alive, and you want to donate money in his honor. You know, and as a result of that. You also include your name so that you should know who's, who's doing that. Or in the case of an ancestor, do, do you want to know that it's their descendants that are dedicating it. That's also fine. These things are fine. You don't have to give mat all the time. Right. Now, On the other end, of course, the, the highest level of stalka is uh, nobody knows that you gave.
0: <laughs> right. Absolutely. Okay. One final question, Rabbi Berkowitz, we've been talking about the importance of SNEAS, really in, in spending and uh, staying below the radar screen don't publicize it don't flaunt it this is obviously going to be very difficult for a lot of people if you live especially in the more wealthy communities and everyone's driving a fancy car and everyone's has a house this size and we're telling people be a little bit of a chacham, right A don't live like that how do you change your mindset what's the aids or, or solution of a person who's now going to be driving something that's less um Popular than others, less viewed as something significant and important than others and and meaning a lower lifestyle and not wearing the same clothing, how do they uh, think about life that uh, they could be feeling they're underprivileged what's what's the right mindset that they should have
2: so I would like to differentiate between two forms of living and luxury. I'm saying luxury because perhaps for us you know for us looking at others that have greater wealth, uh, we call it luxury um there are people that can afford it, and they enjoy things. Listen, all the luxuries in the world were created for whom? Not for Jews, not for Khalil Yisrael. <laughs> Come on. Hashem created this world for us. You, you want to spend your money on things that you really enjoy. It's a beautiful thing. Of course, all these other considerations that we discussed have to be taken. have to, You've know, you got to keep them in mind. But then there's somebody else who's not really enjoying anything. He's just busy keeping up with everybody else. He's just so interested in everybody else's approval. uh, He thinks they're going to respect him more. That that unfortunately is very painful. It's very, very painful. Someone like that should know, and this is the, the reality of it, people respect you more when you're not busy trying to impress them. People respect you more when you are your own person and do what you know is right. You're really looking for respect that makes a difference to you. Playing this game of trying to keep up with everybody and because of it, they think highly of you, it really backfires. It really backfires. Everyone knows what's going on. They know what you're doing. Simply for social climbing, you're not social climbing. I mean, you know, you're playing that game, but ultimately, do people respect you? (laughs) Not true, they don't. they laugh behind your back and sometimes to your face. Very good.
0: Well, Rabbi Berakovich, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure speaking with you.
2: You're very, very welcome. <laughs> Be well and continue.
0: <laughs> joining us now is Rabbi Dr. Zev Weiner. Rabbi Weiner is a Rav, a Magid Shir, and also a psychiatrist with his MD from Harvard University. Dr. Rabbi, Rabbi Dr. Weiner, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Rosari, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure it's, to be
0: here. It's a pleasure to have you. you know, I I love people with uh, double degrees and actually double occupations, uh, double uh, interest, because I get to cover two interviews in one, the uh, halachic side, Ashkafic side, and also the psychological side. So thank you, B, for being on. Mm-hmm. It's very helpful.
3: Tremendous pleasure.
0: So let's start actually with the psychological side. So Dr. Wiener, what's the concept? We're talking about spending, and uh, it seems to me... Um, that a big problem that we have in society is uh, that we look at others when others are spending and we want to do the same. And the concept, as you hear about growing up, is keeping up with the Joneses, and maybe it's a little bit different. We can call it it keeping up with the Coens or something like that in the Jewish community. So what's that concept? What does it mean? And
3: what are the implications? Yeah, well, it's definitely a very real concept um, that we see in all strata of society. And what it generally refers to is the deep-seated need that we feel to keep up with our neighbors. It's usually meant in more of an external sense of projecting that one belongs in a specific social or socioeconomic class. Um, The goal is to be, as it says, keeping up. Having people in my community think that I enjoy a comparable or even superior lifestyle by my having what they have, or even more than what they have. So it would be having a comparable home, a comparable car, comparable vacations, uh, and the like. Now, that leads to spending beyond your limits, beyond your means, because
0: if somebody else is doing it and you're trying to compete or try to be like that person and the like, so that person may be able to afford it, or maybe that person can't afford it and is on debt or is getting loans, and uh, you can't afford it, but still you're going to be spending to be like the Joneses. So what's, what's the psychology behind that? Why does somebody believe that spending today is more important than somebody's uh financial stability and and uh getting into debt which is really something that's uh detrimental
3: yeah yeah i mean the phenomenon of spending beyond one's limits like so many things is is a really diverse phenomenon you know there's probably a lot of different reasons why people live beyond their means. You know, sometimes it's nothing to do with keeping up with the Joneses or nothing about public perception. Just, you know, life is very hard. And nowadays in particular, earning a living, even for, you know, middle-class solid job, it's very hard. Things are very expensive. Inflation, supply chain shortages, rising cost of living, maintaining even just a basic level of living, completely ignoring who's around you is certainly not... Not an easy thing for for so many of us and can starch people think. And when you add on on top of that, you know the cost of religious observance, you know day school, the real estate and many religious neighborhoods, shabbos Yom, you know there there's a lot and and it takes a toll and that in and of itself, know leads people to sometimes have to spend more than they can afford not to project an image but simply to to get by you know other times it also may not really be about comparing to other people but it may have to do with a person's own sense of just what is a luxury what is a convenience and what is a necessity you know a lot of times the line between these things can be very easily blurred and you know we can get things that we just feel we can't live without irrespective of what others may have and again here You'll see different you know, lines drawn for different people, but one has to be be very careful. In fact, there's a beautiful comment in the Medrash Shmua in his. Uh, Parish and where we know that the Mishnah tells us that a person has to be very careful with which we commonly understand to mean with authority, with the government. You have to be careful. Because and the Mishnah tells us that even though near in that they appear to love you know, people who are in the government or in positions of authority, but they often aren't there for you in your time of need, in your time of distress. And he says, as, as he frequently does, that this doesn't necessarily have to be read literally that there's an additional level of interpretation of you have to be very careful with the rishos with things that are voluntary things that are not usir but not a mitzvah either you know a lot of the times the things uh, the luxuries the most sorrows the, the excesses that we we become used to can exert a real grip on us which maybe we'll talk about uh you know over the course of our discussion and uh, one just has to be very careful with that and um sometimes that can can lead us to end up spending a lot more than, than we think. So it's, it sounds like there sounds like there are four levels then.
0: Number one is life is expensive, period. Number two is from life is even more expensive, period. Number three is that needs versus luxuries. And sometimes we are spending what is uh, on luxuries and not a need. And maybe we could believe that it's a need and it's really a luxury. And that's uh, a reshuse. It's uh, really not uh, something Necessary for us. That's what you were focused on just now. And number four is overall that keeping up with the Cohens, right? So that's uh, top of all the four. So, so we have four layers
3: that we're really discussing here. Exactly, exactly. And I would say that that again, there are probably many more. But in terms of just things that I see, and you know, the level of stress that I see, so many young and older families dealing with. You know, I think these are they cover a lot of the cases. And in terms of that fourth level, you know, of keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up with the Collins, there, you know, we would say that that's a situation where a person really is concerned for public perception. And sometimes that could be they want to avoid embarrassment, right? It doesn't feel good to be the only one in the room when everyone in Shul is, you know, announcing their bids publicly and giving large amounts of, of money. And, you know, you know, you can't afford it, but it's embarrassing to be left out for many, many people, they experience that, and that can lead people to overextend. You know, sadaka is obviously a, a very lofty goal, but you have to be careful that one doesn't overextend Takana Susha, as we know. Um, and then on the other hand, sometimes it's more not just to avoid the negative of embarrassment, but rather to incur the positive of feeling honor, feeling power, feeling that one is respected um, for having things that one may not actually have. And, you know, the idea of respecting people for, for their wealth, people who are wealthy, Incurring special treatment isn't the new thing, right? The Gemara talks about it. Remember this Gemara, the Gemara talks about the concept of a taba'as right? That in the olden times, it seems like, you know, people would borrow a ring. If they were going to a party. If they were going somewhere, that uh, Rashi or the Mafarish says, right? That people see that you're wealthy, you look like you, and you're likely to get more food. The Gemara says, because you, because you project that certain image. When I know the Gemara says in Erebin and Afkei that Rabbi is Mechabed Ashirim, Rabbi Akiva was Mechabed Ashirim. There's a concept even of great people showing kavod to Ashirim. How one understands that Gemara, there's a lot written on, and there may be much more depth to it than, than just sort of the surface level reading. But whatever it is, there's it is clearly something that um, was either worthy or happened to attract the, the attention of people. You know, which which again is, is something that um, is a real, real phenomenon. And so sometimes people wanting to obtain that sense of comfort, the sense of um, being important, um, will will live beyond their means as well.
0: Okay, so you brought various rationales on this level number four of keeping up with the Joneses and Coens, avoiding embarrassment, empowerment, getting respect, and also jealousy of others. So it, it could be any of the two. Walk us through if we can put on, instead of the Dr. Wiener Hat, the Rabbi Wiener Hat. I know we were double, dabbling in both of those areas already. But if we talk about an ISR, if somebody's motivated to spend or to act because of jealousy of others, if they see somebody having a big house and they want a big house and they buy a big house, they somebody see somebody having a fancy car, they want a fancy car, somebody with fancy clothing has an expensive, uh woman sees somebody with an expensive bag and wants a I understand that there are some of these purses that could cost $1,000 or something. I couldn't believe such a thing, but that's what I'm told. So if that's your motivator, it could be that we have enough, Kamina, between our our, uh, level number four rationales of avoiding embarrassment or getting respect or jealousy. What are the iserim? Are there any iserim involved if that's our motivator?
3: Yeah, yeah. So in this discussion, oftentimes people raise the question of Los Ahmud or Los sisave. where right? we know that there are two prohibitions at the end of the Asera Sadibros, Los Sahmod in both Israel and Vaschan, and Los sisave is added at the end of Vaschanan. And you know, sometimes that question is raised, you know, does one violate those isurim by seeing, you know, you have this, so I want to get it as well. And that from a purely Halafic sense probably isn't isn't really relevant here um, because those two isurim, both when it comes to and to with the Rambam, and the first parak of Hilfos Kizela and others as well, are very clear that those are prohibitions related to wanting, not what, I don't want that item, but I want your item. In other words, they're isurim of, how am I going to obtain what you have from? Me? And so Losachmod, for example, could be where you're pressuring a person to sell it to you, maybe to give it to you, um, but you're doing some sort of what the Rambam calls, right? you're taking some sort of step to be able to get, don't desire is even a broader prohibition, um, which doesn't have to require some sort of mysis, some sort of means or actions of convincing, of sorting, um, of getting the person to give it to you. But even there also, the Rambam seems very clear, and the Kinov and Tarakashokhan and more of the Archaic literature flush this out that that also entails some sort of a desire to obtain what you have, not to go get one for myself, but to get your your object, um, and so those prohibitions seemingly wouldn't um, be as relevant here. I think what what's probably more relevant. Um, in my mind, is is the issue of mitzvahs right? and in the issue of kina, right? We know that jealousy is um, a mitzvah that we're cautioned to, to be very, very careful with. Right? They have uh, the possibility: jealousy, desire, honor, to literally remove a person from this world in more ways than one. And um, I think that that's probably more what we're dealing with, um, you know, in the realm of. Uh, of seeing what someone else has and, and wanting it for myself, if it's coming from a place of jealousy, as we saw.
0: But let, let's change the tables here and talk about from, from the perspective of somebody who owns an item, not somebody who desires an item, but owns an item. There are people that want to flaunt their wealth or whether it's wealth or it's not wealth, it could be perceived wealth, because oftentimes it's based on debt that was incurred to purchase the item. What's behind the desire, the the motivation, the psychology behind somebody
3: wanting to show off um, somebody's uh, financial abilities? I mean, in a situation where that really is the motive, and as we said, you know, a lot of the time it's not, but if if someone is doing it for that, you know, I think that it ultimately comes deep down from actually a very holy place. It's just sort of a misguided um, actualization of that holy place, because you know, deep down, there's nothing that a human being wants more. There's nothing we want more deeply in this world than anything, than to matter. And it doesn't matter whether you're two years old and you're in Gone and you want the mora to notice you or you're 82 years old and you're feeling neglected by the world, you feel like nobody cares about you, and, and you don't matter, you don't have any purpose, that, that's our, our deepest, deepest core desire. And it comes, like I said, from a very holy place, because the reason why it feels so bad to feel like you don't matter is because deep, deep down, you know you do matter. But by definition, if you're here, you're a fele ke you ma'al, you're, you're an aspect, you're a divine and a neshama within you, you're here for a specific purpose in this world, your life is not arbitrary around. If it was, then it wouldn't hurt so much to, to feel like you don't matter. And so we're all looking for that in everything that we do to feel like we matter. And so money, fame, popularity, compliments, those are all what I would say like false surrogates for, for this deep-seated need. It's like an artificial sweetener, right? You get these things, somebody's looking at your car, somebody's looking at your home and saying, wow. Man. And in the moment, that feels great. Wow, like I matter, like you know that that builds me up. But as we know, that feeling doesn't last, right? Like the artificial sweetener, it doesn't nourish. You. It doesn't. It doesn't give you something that you truly need. You know, there are a lot of things in life that can be replicas of something, and you can think is that thing, but they're actually very, very different from the thing that you're going for. Therefore, I think that that's where a lot of it comes from. And it's not a bad thing to want to matter. But a lot of times, people think that being humble, being modest, not flaunting, is about. Forgoing pleasure in this world, you feel like a nobody, but it's okay because it'll pay off later. But I think it's very different. I think that actually, you know, Chazal are teaching us that Ashraf right? Abetovla, that even in in this world, the greatest sense of self you can have is by negating the ego and not going after that. By realizing that your your goodness, your the light that you carry is unconditional, right? It, it's in the neshama, it's being neved Hashem, right? Eved Melef, Melef. Chazal tell us that slave of a king, the servant of a king, is royal himself, um, which doesn't require external validation. And so, you know, I think that's ultimately where it comes from. I do want to talk
0: a little bit more about the problem. Would you say that
3: people posting their activities on
0: social media is kind of a subset of this attempt to get validation from others? Do they want people to be jealous? Do they want people to like them? Do they want to be thought of as wealthy? And I'd add another question onto that, as long as we're talking about posting on social media and the like, if the intent is to cause envy of others, to portray yourself as living the great
3: life, is there an ISR involved in causing others to be jealous of you? I think it's such an important question um, because social media is a reality in the world and um, you know it affects far and wide um, so many aspects of people's lives uh, in the world that we live in. Um, I think there are many different reasons why people use social media and um, not all of them come from ego. You know, I think it's important to remember that for many people, uh, it's really not about showing off, but it's just about feeling a connection to family and to friends, including them in their lives, sharing their experiences. Um, and that's really sort of the the focus of why they're doing it. Um, other people do it to memorialize certain experiences, to give it more mamashus, um, to concretize it. There's a saying out there I don't particularly care for, but the saying goes, picks or it didn't happen, right? That if, um, if you don't post pictures of something, not to brag, not to show off, but just to to make it that you remember that it actually occurred and that others can acknowledge it, to document it in some way. Sometimes people use social media for their own self-image because there's a certain projection image that they want to give off to the world. You know, they want to be seen as the carefree traveler, the detached intellectual, the family man, soccer mom, right? Depending on what you choose to post, you can create that image for yourself. And um, even though that's really just a small section of your entire life, um, it allows you to do that. But yes, I think that there are certain instances where people may be posting um, from a place of comparison, from a place of competition, of wanting to show off. And so in those situations where a person is doing it, or even if they're not doing it for that reason, but that the posting could still inspire envy or jealousy, um, it's an interesting question, would there be an aspect of leaf naï there? I think for technical halakhic reasons, obviously I defer to the posting for the bottom line halakha, but it would seem... In Lambdus, that it would be a very big fetish to argue that it's real lifneiver midaraisa to uh, to post something like that um, for a number of reasons, which we don't have to get into all the intricacies. But just to put it briefly, lifneiver is a lav that has many hagdaros, many parameters. And in order to meet the bar of Midar midaraisa, one would have to meet those specific parameters. Seemingly, would be hard to to argue here. Even lifneiver you know, is uh, might be. Challenging to argue, though, I, I could hear if someone wanted to make the case. I think the more relevant issue at hand is less a specific Avera from the Torah, and as you were alluding to, Ravari, more the issue of the broader perspective. That sometimes there are values in Yiddishkeit that go beyond the Tariag mitzvos, that go beyond specific halacha that are important to attend to. And here, I think there's, there's two values in particular that one should always be keeping in mind whenever we post something. Uh, The first one is just how it's going to make other people feel, and that even if there's not a specific law, even if I'm not doing actual ifnei there, we see from so many different halakhos and so many different stories in our tradition that what a tremendous emphasis we place on trying to never do something that could hurt another person, that could embarrass another person, right? The gemaras at the end of Masafas Moed Katan come to mind, which talk about the different takanos of Chazal and of Minagim, where, for example, in the olden times, when someone lost a relative, if he was wealthy, they would bring baskets to the first meal of, of gold or of silver. And if he was poor, they would bring more inferior quality baskets. And uh, they made a takarim they didn't want to embarrass that Anim uh, They were getting uncomfortable. That they felt inferior. They felt left out. They felt they weren't on the same level. And they said, "No, we should bring the same quality for everyone." Right? You know, The mission at the end of Masachus time is talking about special Yamim Tovim for Yisrael, of Yam and and the different practices that were done in, in old times. And uh, again, the mission there, because uh, I elaborate that you know the B'nosi Shalim would go out and reclaim love right. They're strong of this, never to embarrass someone who doesn't have, to never make them feel inferior. Again, you could argue those are cases that are more public. This is more private. But I think the value, we could bring endless examples, just the sensitivity we have to have. And of course, that sensitivity has to be balanced against, right? It could be that anything we do could cause someone pain. You know, tragically, even walking to shul with one's child, you know, in public. Could Rahman, it's not, it could cause someone tremendous pain if they haven't been blessed to have a child. How I think
0: we can distinguish between somebody who's going through the normal life of walking to shul and somebody who's actively publishing something on the internet. I don't think you can get any more public
3: than that. Exactly. Exactly. And so I think that we have these extremes of you know a case where... You know, it seems very Mestaber that you're not doing anything wrong by walking to Shul. And another thing where maybe you're publishing something with a specific intent of making people to, to feel bad and to those who don't have to feel inferior. And then I think it really comes down to every individual casing. Where do you draw the line? You know, where is, where is the boundary between um, excessive showing, excessive sharing in that way that causes harm versus the unfortunate but inevitable harm that may come just as a side effect of life? And um, you know that's really where the post come in, that's where Sake Alayashra comes in, that's where the Hillel, the Alak Sani Khaber comes in, right? The, the kolatara kula regalachas. Um, but I think that's really one aspect. And then just very briefly, the other aspect that I think comes here, even if we're not dealing with a formal Allah K of let's say Lifnei Iber, but it's just the the priceless value of sneus. As then navi says that everything that we do has to have a sense of sneus modesty you know the value of modesty now we usually think of it just in terms of dress but that's a, a gross misunderstanding you know tzniyas is something that characterized for men for women all aspects of our lives in terms of how much are we looking just to live a public life to be able to show everyone what we have to find favor in the eyes of others versus is it really about as we said that to focus that my goal in life is to find favor in the eyes of not to be sending my time and energy at what image am I giving off? You know, like we said, what what persona do I want to project on social media really to put my life into, you know, focusing on, on that which is between me and my creator? Um, you know, the what Rashi tells us from the Medrash, there's nothing more beautiful than that. And so I think those are a couple of the values that, I think, of when it comes to these issues, not necessarily formal isurim from the Torah, but certainly critical halachic and hashkafic concepts. Which could be even more important. Yes, yes, absolutely. Right. So,
0: one of your specialties is, is dealing with uh, patients with anxiety. Is this an, a discussion that you have with your patients about the impact of Social media and they're viewing other people's lives on social media that impacts anxiety, or is this something that really doesn't have a significant impact?
3: Oh, yeah, very much so, Um, both in terms of anxiety as well as in terms of depression. Uh, You know, there's an old saying that I think is very true that, you know, there's no, you know, uh, maybe misquoting something along the lines of there's no greater cause of pain in life than comparison. You know, and as long as we're comparing to others, whether it's on social media or whether it's on the street, you know, social media didn't create the problem. It just takes this basic human drive, as we've been talking about, keeping up with the Joneses. and It makes it even easier to uh, to fall into. But it can cause all sorts of anguish and problems. And and by contrast, a person who can really focus on staying in their lane and, and not looking at how am I doing relative to others? How am I measuring up against other people? But just making internal goals of saying, you know, how can I be better tomorrow than I was today? How can I be the best version of myself? Your life will be so much happier you know, and will be so much calmer without those pressures. Not to say, of course, that anyone who's struggling with these things is comparing and falling into that. Of course not. But the converse, I think, is true that when we compare it to others, we, um, we're definitely robbed of a lot of happiness that we could be having in the very same life that we're living. That's a very powerful message, a very
0: good place to end off our conversation. So that the point is, don't compare yourself to others, compare yourself to yourself. Am I doing better than yesterday? And always try to improve yourself independent of what others have or portray themselves as having. Exactly. Rabbi Dr. Wiener, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate all of your insights and experience.
3: Thank you again for having me, Ravari. Always a pleasure to see you.
0: Joining us now is Professor Michael Norton. Professor Norton is a professor at Harvard Business School. His research focuses on behavioral economics. I'm not sure what that means, but he does have a focus on happiness and spending. And I do know what that means. Uh, His uh, research has been published basically everywhere, Wall Street Journal, I'm I'm not gonna list out the whole whole, uh, list of places, but it's places everyone has heard of. He is also the co-author of a book called Happy Money, The Science of Happier Spending. Professor Norton, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, it's really good to be here. It is great to have you. I wanna start out with the most basic of questions, something that you have researched in and out over decades does money buy
4: happiness? This answer is going to be annoying, but it's a typical academic answer which is it depends. <laughs> so uh or, or Orthodox
0: Jews are used to that answer
4: <laughs> that's the only answer we take so so you're good you're in good hands. It's the only correct answer to any question in my view but but uh yeah so I think um I think we all do know that you know money is not the key. To happiness. In other words, we know a lot of people with a lot of money who are not very happy at all. And we know a lot of people with less money who are very, very happy. So it, it clearly isn't just more money makes us have happier lives. In our research, what we really tried to look at was not so much the amount of money, but very simply what you do with the money. And sort of the question hadn't really been thought of in, in that way in academic circles, but it's not how much you have, it's what you do with it. That's true of your time, of your money, of anything in life it's not the quantity of the thing it's whether you use it in things that are associated with happiness or not well that's
0: that's I'd love to hear more so so spending if you spend on yourself versus spending on let, let's talk about I want to buy a new car or I want want to take a luxury vacation or I want to take that luxury vacation or I want to give it to charity so if I have a choice is in ultimately if my objective is happiness because there are ulterior motives that would lead us to spend in other ways I guess if it's about ego or I want to have my name on a building, or I want to have people like the car that I'm driving, uh, maybe that's happiness, maybe that's not. So walk, walk us through uh, what your studies show on how to spend and if our
4: objective is happiness. I have to say a, a, joke, a joke that I have that my wife keeps telling me is not funny, but I say there are no buildings at Harvard called the Anonymous Building. That is true. That is people, true. Like the name. people like the names. So for sure, I think one of the things that we see is when we look at, and you could do this yourself, if you get your credit card statement or bank statement, and you just look at what you spent in the last month, just categorize it how you think the categories go together. And one of the things that we see is that, of course, people spend most of their money on themselves. Not in a bad way, just... I need to eat. I need to get around. I need to pay my mortgage or my bills or whatever else it might be. So there's nothing wrong with spending money on yourself. And in fact, we show it doesn't make you unhappy to spend money on yourself. It just doesn't seem to make you happier. And that's the problem, right? So if we spend most of our money on ourselves and it doesn't seem to do much for us, are there other things? And our default is myself, myself, myself. I'm going to get a new phone. I want to get a new whatever. Can we shift people around to spending on things that might make them happier, You know, given that they have at least a little wiggle room on where they spend their money? And as you said, two of the areas very simply are, instead of buying stuff for yourself, you can either buy experiences for yourself and your loved ones, or forget about yourself entirely and think about maybe benefiting somebody else with the money instead. And our research and other people's research pretty reliably shows that on average spending on yourself doesn't do much for you buying experiences or giving to others seems to on average actually make people happier
0: okay so so we would grade them as stuff for yourself not so great experiences for yourself good and buying stuff for others and is that talking specifically about charity or it need not be charity it's just spending on other people whether they're in need or not
4: yep that's right it can be um uh gifts for friends, treating a friend to lunch, all the way to, you know, donating to a charity in a country very far from you, you know, toward people who are very different from you, all of those things seems to be associated with seem to be associated with more happiness than using the same money to buy yourself something else. I often think about it as and we look at small amounts on purpose, you know, if you had $5, how could you spend it today, you know, to be the happiest with that $5? Rather than if you had a billion dollars, what would you do with it? Because none of us do. So if you even literally think about $5, if you buy yourself a coffee with the $5, there's nothing wrong with that. I like coffee a bit, bit, you know, Um, but it's probably not going to do that much for you because it's the one trillionth coffee you've had in your life. You know, you're going to have four more that day or whatever. So it just doesn't. It's not that it's bad to have coffee. It just doesn't do much for us. Imagine though, instead, you buy a friend a coffee and you give it to them. Well, now your friend says, wow, he's a really nice guy. They might smile. You feel good about giving. You don't get to drink coffee, but you get much more happiness. Or imagine you take the $5 and give it to somebody else who's really in need. It's going to have a huge impact on them. It's going to have no impact on my day. It could have a huge impact on somebody else. And our research shows when you have a feeling that your money is having an impact, that's actually one of the key triggers to get happiness out of that money.
0: So in other words, giving to a friend and giving to somebody in super need, you may have more happiness from, and a better feeling about yourself giving to somebody who's in super need than just simply giving to a friend who can afford his own cup of coffee.
4: That's right. But even friend who can afford his own cup of coffee, still better to do that than get yourself another right. cup of right. coffee. All of the giving seems to beat selfishness. I shouldn't right. say selfishness. It's just spending on yourself. There's nothing wrong with it.
0: It could, be, it could be needs, it could be uh, yeah. So so Orthodox Jews, they typically give big, give giveaway. There's actually a, a Jewish law of giving a tithe 10% and that's, that's actually viewed as a mediocre mitzvah, a mediocre commandment. Mm-hmm. The ideal is to give 20%, 20% and uh, their opinions to give even more than that of, of your net income. So an Orthodox Jew has a choice of uh, we give big, we we also spend big on ourselves, on our cars, on our So we have both of those factors, which is probably a little bit unusual. So if we're thinking about our goal of maximizing happiness, not maximizing pleasure, maximizing happiness, what would be the ideal use of funds between giving charity on the one hand and spending on ourselves on the other hand?
4: Uh, we, so it, it kind of depends on your value. So we, we, we try to dive down into who are you and what makes you happy in particular um but in in general for most people buying even a big thing for yourself isn't really going to do that much for your happiness in the long term compared to doing something big for others Th- lots of research not my research but other research um the size of your house your apartment or your house is completely uncorrelated with how happy you are with your life completely uncorrelated not negatively you know big houses aren't bad for us but they just don't change your life, which at first seems not right. But then you think, and we ask people, "When were you the happiest in your life?" And often they say, "Oh, I was sharing, you know, an apartment with three friends, and we had no, you know, I mean, you, if you really think about it, of course, the size of where you're living, it's not that it's people like bigger houses. Nothing wrong with that, of course. But is that really the key to happiness? Probably not. It's the people you're with, the relationships you have, whether you're living out your values or not. So. Even these big purchases that seem like wow, that's surely gonna make me happier in my life—they don't really seem to. We seem to get used to them, like we get used to everything else. And again, if you have three spare bedrooms in your house and nobody's in them, you don't have three—you know—you may as well not have three spare bedrooms, right? right. If you have friends in them, then it's fantastic. So we really try to think about it in that way—that it's the impact of your money on your relationships and on your feeling about the world. Not the size of the thing or the expensiveness of the thing or anything like that.
0: Very interesting. So we're just going to focus a little bit uh, on the show. We're talking about people who spend but don't have. That's a fairly common issue. Uh, debt is high, and that means people are spending when they don't have the money. So, what what would you say are the motivators for people to spend money when they don't have the means? But they live in a society or an environment where people spend freely. We're not talking about spending on on the basic needs, but the motivators of people when they see people who can afford things and they want to afford things, and they are spending accordingly based on the norms of the society they live in despite the fact that they really don't have the means to live. There. What, what's the motivation going on? there? You're, you're fundamentally a psychologist. That's that's what your uh, PhD yeah. is been. So, I'm asking the psychology behind that.
4: There's um, a couple of things going on, I think. One is Um, For better and for worse, we humans compare ourselves to other humans, full stop, on everything. You know, if you go into a room, you figure out, not on purpose, but you figure out where you are in the height distribution in the room. You know, am I the tallest? Am I the shortest? Whatever it might be. You know, who's got the nicest car? We just look around and, and see. We might not do anything about it. It's just, it's human to look around and see what others are doing. And it matters to us what other people are doing. You know, if you're uh, older brother is more successful than you, as mine is. Uh, you know, then that's annoying. And so I don't. I love him just the same. But we compare, and that comparison can be great. It can be motivating. It can cause you to you know work harder, strive for things in life. But it can sometimes lead us astray, where we're trying to. The phrase is "keeping up with the Joneses," uh, where you're there's a mythical family who's doing better than you, the Jones, and, and we, you're here, here. We're calling. Here. Looking at, we're trying to keep up with the Cohens. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I'm Irish Catholic, so mine would be like the Sullivan's or something. But, but whatever your uh, <laughs> whatever your group is, and so we buy things that maybe we can't we can't exactly afford. Um, and one, the the second thing that's going on is when we look at what other people have, we don't know if they're in debt or not. So, what we think is, so if I see that you have a big house, what I think is, wow, he's got a ton of money, he's got a great house. I'm not thinking about the fact that you're underwater on your mortgage, because I don't know that because you didn't tell me that. So we look at others and we think they're just buying this stuff and they're able to afford it, not knowing they're in debt, and then we make the same purchase and get in the same kind of debt that they're in, but it's a little bit too late when we realize that.
0: That's very interesting. So, human nature is number one, and number two is the grass is always greener on the other side, but it's really not. Now, from that viewpoint, from a psychological perspective, somebody wants to curtail their spending when others don't, and wants to st- still not feel underprivileged, or they certainly don't want their children to feel underprivileged. How do we go about doing that? Uh, I guess we say, stop looking at other people and th- know that they're in debt. Like, Is that is that the two solutions, or are there other things that we can work through in order to get comfortable with our situation? We don't know the
3: answer
4: it's a hard one I wish uh that we had the solution on how to approach life um where you where you simply say I'm good with what I have um there is some research actually that um practicing gratitude in your daily life which is um could be toward others but much of it is actually toward yourself that I'm I'm grateful for the life that I have that is one way to sort of keep yourself centered where it's not about I wish I had what they had it's I'm happy with what I have, and there is some research that shows that that can be helpful for us to kind of break the the bad habit we might have of comparing. But then our uh, you know coworker drives up in a new car, and we're we're right back in it. So it's it's really really hard for us to turn to turn that switch off.
0: Yeah, I, I hear I hear. So and somebody once told me a, a story a few years ago that uh, they had a coworker, and the coworker was dying to buy her ideal car. I love that car. I love that car. I love that car. Went on for two years. Finally, she could afford the car, bought the car, and was the happiest person in the world. Two days later, she comes in so sad, despondent. And, and this person I know said, so what happened? Somebody passed me on the highway, and that's really the car I want.
4: Beautiful.
0: Oh, terrible, terrible. So, so let me let me talk you talk to you about society. When the wealthy spend big, and people who can't afford it, when they spend spend big, how does that impact others who can't afford goods, houses, purchases that would be societally accepted, expected that they'll be having it? So, yeah, we have some people, the big spenders, the two percent, the five percent, the ten percent that can afford it. How does that trickle down and impact others that really can't afford it?
4: We do see that uh, when you are surrounded by affluence, it does motivate people to try to pursue affluence, but it's very local. So often people, we talked about keeping up with the Joneses, the Joneses are very often the people who are right next to us, our neighbors and the people we live with. We compare more to them than to celebrities with millions of dollars or Bill Gates or whoever. So it is the case that seeing great wealth can impact us, but in fact, a lot of our behavior is driven more locally by what's happening right around us, with our siblings and with other people in our lives. And again, that might lead us to make some purchases that aren't ideal, but not as bad as if I'm trying to keep up with Bill Gates and I think I can get a private jet, and I, you know, I, I can't afford that. So there is a sense also of focusing on yourself and locally is one way to keep ourselves a little bit in check and not get all caught up in you know consumption, consumption, consumption.
0: Right. Thank you very much. Very wise words. We really appreciate having you. I hope we can have you in the future again. I've really enjoyed our conversation.
4: Karina, it was really great to chat.
0: Thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thank you. Take care.
0: Joining us now is Rabbi Naftali Horowitz. Rav Naftali is a managing director and portfolio manager at Morgan Stanley. He's also the author of the book, You Revealed, A Torah Path to a Life of Success. I have read it. It's an excellent book. Rav Naftali, always a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for the honor of being here again.
0: Uh, So, Rav Naftali, I told you last time I heard you speak that I'm making you my Rebbe. So, uh, I'm conflicted here. I know you don't like the title, Rabbi Horowitz, uh, but I may slip into that occasionally, so I apologize in advance.
1: This is your show, Ari, so you get to
4: do whatever you want.
2: Okay,
0: great. Thank you. So so uh, let's start with the basics. We are addressing, I don't know what percentage of people, but it's way in excess of 80% of individuals. We had a show once on lavish living. That's probably the w- top 1% of earners or less than that. And recently also a, a show on those who are yeshiva bachers, planning for a living and the like. And now we're talking To everyone else who is in the middle, who can't afford the highest luxuries, sometimes have to forgo on things that they'd like to afford. And oftentimes, we find people are spending nonetheless. So the question that uh, I'd like to start with is, for a family who really can't afford the luxuries um, that have co- become very common in our communities, as you know, as you read the, the newspapers, the magazines, and they have these advertisements, and uh, those are items that people are spending on. But if you can't afford it, what's your advice to those families? How should they be handling their spending?
1: The first thing I want to say is that people get very offend- offended um, when you bring up spending. They they almost look at it as though you're judging them or you're dictating to them. You're know, making them feel like they don't deserve perhaps what other people do do deserve. I've heard that word this a lot um, when I've spoken to people. Don't I deserve to live the life that others are living, and so on and so forth? So first thing I just want to make clear is that nothing that I'm going to say in this segment is going to be. It, it should be deemed as being judgmental. Um, I've been there. I spent many years amongst those who did not have. I had spent many years of those who envied those that did have. So this is about, you know, This is about giving a person back their quality of life, giving them back their right to choose. What is right for me in the long term, in the short term? What's right for the clinic of my children? What kind of legacy do I want to leave? And with what do I want to appear in the next world? More than, you know, about, you know, whether or not you deserve to live a certain way or not. So I don't care if this is to the 80%, the 1%. I, I think we all fall into the same categories. Um, we've we've all become accustomed to things that were extraordinarily excessive even 20 years ago. Um, these things have become so we have become so acclimated to them that we don't realize. How many things in our lives are are putting so much pressure on us? Things that we absolutely do not need. And the only reason why we're doing them is because it's become the norm. And then you look around and you will see plenty of people who have not adopted this lifestyle. People that have the means to adopt this lifestyle. People that don't have the means to adopt this lifestyle. And these people are free. They're free of the shackles of what our society is imposing on so many of us. So to those families who are looking around and seeing luxuries, others living with these types of luxuries and and saying, well, how can I live without them? Their answer is, you know you can. Your forefathers lived without them. There was a time when everybody lived without them. And we should ever put back into a situation where a Kodesh Baruch shows us what a person truly needs and what a person does not need. So I think the, it begins with understanding that luxuries do not equal happiness. And I'm sure many people have belabored this point, but it truly does not equal happiness. And that too is that if you can't afford something and you try to afford something, the pain and anguish on the other side of what it's going to take to get that luxury is going to be so much greater than the pleasure of that luxury. So to those families that can't afford, don't, period. To those families that can afford, think long and hard whether or not this is truly additive to your life.
0: Very good. So, so uh, let me ask you uh, a guiding principle that you can give us on what to spend on and what to sp- not to spend on. We should be discerning, and it's interesting you mentioned that the people who can't afford it, you said don't. The people who can afford it, think about. It. I'd like to get back to those people who can't afford it, but right now we're we'll focused on the people that can't afford it, so they have to decide on a case by case basis. A new jacket, uh, sending to a sports camp, sending to a yeshiva camp, sending to a call. whatever it is. There's always th- these decisions to make. So, is there a guiding principle that people can think about, what should I spend on and what should I not spend on?
1: So again, we spend on needs and we spend on wants. And I think the problem is that we've blurred the the definition of needs versus wants and society has blurred it for us as well. So there are so many justifications for some of the things that we want to fall into the need category. It's funny, I was teaching the Harvest just yesterday in Shara B'China. The Harvest L'Vavas says that the Kaddish Baruch Hu instilled the world with certain knowledge, certain sciences, certain um, techniques, which are prevalent in the world because the world needs them. And it's interesting, he comes up with two examples, just two. One of them is Halbasha, the ability to create clothing. And the other one is agriculture. These are the two things that the house of Abbas comes up with to give examples. And when I was teaching the class, it jumped out at me and says, because in the time of the house of Abbas, those were really the two basic needs. I need to have what to eat, and I need to have what to wear. And we can also add, of course, we need a roof over our heads. But in truth, unfortunately, the Jewish people have been of this many, many times in our history, from the lap of luxury to survival in the horrible periods. And you know, our our chazal tell us that it's to remind us of what we truly are about and what's really important. And that stripping away all the luxuries of life it really comes down to the basics. The Ramam says this many times that most of the stresses and aggravations of life are man-made, self-composed, because people don't understand the difference between a luxury and a need, and everything becomes a need, and therefore, they're constantly stressed out over how am I going to pay for it. This is the Rambam in the Rambam's times. Rabbi Knievsky writes about this many, many times as well, that the the, the desire for excesses and to be uh, you know, counted amongst those that have is what causes people to have so much aggravation and stress in their lives. So I think a person has to truly have a Rebbe for this whether that's a safer whether it's an individual to truly recalibrate in their home in the in the confines of their home what is important to spend on and what isn't and never to use society as their as their yardstick that's their barometer
0: right you know we see that in we see that in Berechias from Yaakov Avinu, he says, li lechem mm-hmm. So, give me just food and uh, and food and clothing. And there's a Radak there that says he's not asking anything in excess, just what his basic needs were. And <laughs> I saw there's a Meiri on in pedal that he says, roi Lola adam Don't spend except based on the need. And then he says, "Hembem machal, Just food clothing, and what absolutely is necessary, but no more than that. So, uh, I think that's exactly on point. But we're talking about um, needs and wants. I I once asked a a bunch of students, uh, college-age students, uh, to fill out a form of needs and wants. And it was to go through what were the needs that you've spent on in the last week and the wants and I asked them to categorize what's a need and what's a want. And what was very fascinating is that for some of them, what was on their need category was on somebody else's want. And what was somebody else's want is somebody else's need. So right. how do we exactly go about categorizing for ourselves? And so maybe this is a subjective question, a subjective standard. But if we talk about Pesach programs, or we talking about going to Florida for yeshiva week or summer camp, how do we decide if something is a real need or is a want, or maybe there's
1: a, a gray area between them? Well, the first thing I ask myself is, if this is a need, how did my father and grandfather live without it? And if they lived without it, did it impact their quality of life? So if your father, if you grew up going to your Zaydi Seder or your father Seder, and your father grew up going to his father and his Zaydi Seder, and there was no concept of going away to a Pesach program. Well, one would ask themselves, how did I get here? How did it become a need? Did it become a need because I have looked around and seen how other people live and this has became to me something I also need? Or is there some reason for that I cannot make Pesach at home? Now, if you can afford to go away for Pesach and you choose to do so, that's your business. But I don't go away for Pesach and Baruch Hashem, I can afford to do so. And it has nothing to do with money. It has to do with having an authentic Pesach experience and carrying on the messiah of my forefathers. So, if somebody, if somebody has, if somebody feels the need to go away for a Pesach program to the point where they rack up credit cards or they borrow on their line of credit to do so, they truly should sit down and be reflective and say, "How did I get here? How did I get here?" That yeshiva week means. That we rip our children out of the Sviva that they're in, we take them to places where they see things they shouldn't, and then we almost restart the 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 year all over again when they get back. I hear this from Rabeim, I hear this from principals in the many schools. That it's literally like bringing them back from summer camp, and till they get the the momentum back going. How could it be possible that it's become a dire need? for children to go spend a week in Florida or Mexico or wherever else they're going. Camp for many people is an absolute need and that's because they live in neighborhoods where children are not allowed to be on the streets during the summer. That's because the children need structure. That's because the children need learning. That's education. That's Kiddushah. That's pre That's protecting your child. That is a need. There's no argument against that. You cannot say it's a luxury. True, they did that perhaps years ago. The streets didn't look the way they did. And years ago, the children had much more, so many more harmless things to do with their with their time. So if you live in that type of a neighborhood, then day camp is a wonderful option. My parents could not afford to send me to summer camp for many years. And I went to Shmuel, um day camp, and I have wonderful, wonderful memories of that. True, we didn't have an Olympic-sized pool. We had one of those cheap above-ground pools. True, we didn't go on all these lavish trips. We went to Clove Lake Park. But you know what? We got by. My parents had one air conditioner. It was in their bedroom. We camped out on the floor, and we all slept in the same bedroom. And guess what? Those were the best summers of my life. It's about what you make of it. And no choice. Children do not have to go to summer camp if, if you one lives in a neighborhood and they can't afford it. And in that neighborhood, there's an option that's going to be a lot less money. I,
0: I remember as a kid growing up also in, in Los Angeles, we didn't have air conditioning. And there was a chamsin, as we say in Israel, a very, very hot summer. And one day was 113 degrees. And we went to a friend of my parents and sat in, there in one air conditioned room as well. So I remember that as a child. Let me just recap your, your test. Your test, if something is a need or a want is, is it something that my father, my grandfather, is this something that they had? If something that they had, we'll categorize it as a need. Otherwise it's a want, but even if it's a want, if it could negatively impact my life, then that's something that would be worthwhile spending on. Is
1: that correct? Yes. And the other thing is is that, you know, every time you spend on a want, unless you have endless amounts of money, you have to understand that that may impact your ability to spend on a need at a future date. So, yeah. which is in a whole other conversation, but you know, every dollar that we have today does not have to get spent. So, yes, we all have wants. And some of us can afford those wants, but the question is, might it be better to assure myself that I'll have money for my needs in the future, such as when I retire or when right. I marry off my children? Right. I heard a story about Rav Chaim Kanievsky. I
0: hope it's accurate, but it's a great story. In- Nonetheless, he people were trying to convince him to put in air conditioning, and Ben Brock is fairly humid in the summer, and he said, I'm okay, I'm okay, i do not it's not necessary. So for him, that wasn't, uh, wasn't a need. A number of years went by, and he consented to have the air conditioning, and at that point, he, they were telling him, it'll help your learning, you'll be able to focus better, and he got the air conditioning eventually, and he said, why didn't I get this earlier? And I think that is adhering to your test. Initially, he was saying, it's not something that I need. My father didn't have it, my grandfather didn't have it, but then when he got it, he understood that it was negatively impacting his life and having it was actually beneficial. So I think that fits in nicely with what you were saying. Now, along the same lines, talking about needs and wants. Now, a house is a need and, and a car is a need. But then we get into the discussion, the next level down of how much of a house is a need and how much is a want and how much of a car is a need and how much is a want. And how do you go about deciding what size house, what expensive house, what size car, what expensive car? And does a few hundred dollars for example, on a mortgage or on uh, car financing really matter if we're talking about something that's so incredibly expensive? So the last
1: question, last part of your question is is the first I'm going to address. It's an interesting thing in behavioral finance that if you um, walk into a restaurant and you look at the menu and there's a $75 steak, you're perfectly happy to pay $75. But then when you go to the meat store and you see something's on sale and it's 10% off, and instead of paying $15 for the stake, you're paying $13.50. You're all excited about it and you buy it. And you may not have ordered it if it was $15. So in the context of um, how much the thing costs, a few hundred dollars to some people shouldn't matter. I see this when I, when I went to a car dealership recently and the, the couple was deciding whether or not to, buy, to splurge on this upgraded car. And the guy says, well, the really only difference is the button in the back to close the trunk so that you don't have to do it manually. And, and the, the couple turns to each other and says, well, we're spending $35,000 on the car, so what's another $3,000? And the answer is that $3,000 or $700 is the same whether it's in the context of a large purchase or a small purchase, or whether it falls out of your wallet. If it falls out of your wallet, and you've lost $300, it's quite painful. If you spend $300 more on something per month, it's not painful because you're thinking about it in the context of how much you're spending otherwise. But that's ludicrous. A few hundred dollars a month is a few hundred dollars a month, period. Houses and cars... Are to a great degree not in the same category. A creating asset. So it's it has a very specific func- function. It gets you from point A to point B. Period. You want air conditioning because you want you don't want to schwitz from point A to point B. That's great. You want some safety features today. Pretty much any car you buy has those safety features. That's the need and the utilitarian value of a car. Period. Now it's unfortunately become much more than that. It's become a status symbol. It's a become It reflects upon who I am and where I fit into society. That's not a car. That has nothing to do with the function of a car, period. So that's the first thing a person should keep in mind. What kind of car do you need? A car that gets you reliably and safely from point A to point B. Now that sounds so silly. Come on, seriously, don't be like that. But I know people that have hundreds of millions of dollars who drive Toyota Camrys, period. That's what they drive. And they do it bishita. Not because they're cheap. These people give millions of dollars at Sadaka, but they will not drive anything other than it's Yoda Cam. That's, they want a car to be exactly what it's supposed to be, a car. Now, a house is a place to sleep and a place to eat. That's what its function is. How much do you need? You need a bed for every one of your children and you need enough bathrooms so that people don't kill each other, okay? You want a dining room and you want a living room. Yes, all that is very, very important. Now, when a house becomes more than that, it becomes a status symbol. It becomes a place where you can just have endless amounts of space and enough closets to just keep stacking up and then throwing it all out for Pesach. And you can afford it. God bless you. If you can't afford it, and I know people that have built houses that they can't afford I know people that have $2 million mortgages. I have no idea how these people sleep at night, but they have $2 million mortgages on their house and they can't afford anything because they just keep worrying about those mortgage payments. Well, now the house has become an albatross when all you really needed was a bed, a kitchen, a dinette, and a bathroom. So at least a house is an appreciating asset. That's the one redeeming factor. It's not a depreciating asset. It's not three years from now this house is worth 30% of what it is worth when I buy it, it should go up over time. The issue is I may choke on those mortgages till I get there. So again, think about why do I need a bigger house? Why do I need so many bedrooms? Why do I need such big bedrooms? Do I really need a living room that's the size of a, a full court basketball court? What do I really need? What is important? And yes, the answer is a few hundred dollars a month could be the difference between you sleeping at night or not sleeping at night. Making your mortgage payment, not making your mortgage payment, going to the yeshiva committee to, to beg for a reduction on tuition, or not going to the yeshiva committee to beg for that. There's a trade-off for some people, and a few hundred dollars a month could make a huge difference. Right. That's that's a clear answer. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, so if we
0: continue on this, we're talking about needs and wants and overspending. When people come to you for advice, a struggling couple- maybe starting out or they may be having uh they have a family and the like and they ask you for financial advice they're struggling what are the common mistakes that you see people making when it comes to spending
1: and planning well, i think the common mistakes are they have no they've never learned to be disciplined they don't know how to be disciplined they they don't even have the tools to think about it so for example i see many many young couples are not afraid enough of debt. They're just not. They they don't have an aversion to borrowing money. They grew up in a society where it's the norm to swipe a credit card and let that balance carry forward to another month. The proliferation of 0% interest rate cards, points would somehow lure us into borrowing money. Um, watching the people around them, maybe it's their parents, maybe it's their friends, how they get by every month, just desensitize them or didn't even desensitize them because they were never sensitive to begin with as far as what the detriments of debt are. And therefore, they literally start off digging themselves into a hole from day one. Gamach loans, they don't see gamach loans as what it really is. You're, you're you're a snara for, for in, in you're borrowing money from a gamach to pay for something because you can't afford it. And that gamach was set up for what it says. Gemilas chesed. They're doing chesed with people that can't afford. It should be again if somebody needs it and they're running, they're in a hard, you know, difficult situation. I understand that. But for people to borrow from Gemachs for all kinds of nonsensical reasons, because they don't see it for the busha that it should be in that circumstance, to me is astonishing. So I, I meet young couples who have gotten themselves into a rut because they borrowed on credit cards. They're spending on things they shouldn't. They're not disciplining themselves. They're not saving money for a rainy day, for a broken washing machine, or for retirement. And now... They've hit literally hit rock bottom because there's no place left to borrow. Their credit cards are maxed out. They don't even own a home yet, so they're not they don't have any good assets that they're paying for. And now they're stopping and saying, "How did we get here? Well, you got here because you never were taught or you never learned how to live a fiscal, fiscally
0: disciplined life." Okay, so so what we're saying is overspending, incurring of debt, and uh, somewhat lack of responsibility. And uh, what we're trying to create here on this show, I guess, is is awareness of these issues. So if somebody is listening to this and they want to make a change and start being more frugal and responsible in their their spending, how would they speak with kids, for example? We're talking about parents and they've been living on a certain level of, of spending and want to make a change. How do you speak to your kids and explain now at this point, we're making changes and why are we
1: making those changes? So you have to always be educating your children about what's important in life and what's not outside of money. Hashkafically, um, if you have to start educating your children about what's important when they're in their 16, and 17, or 18 years old, it's it, you have a lot of catching up to do. So obviously, the younger you start, the better. Um, these are discussions that should be had at the Shabbos table. I know a man, Rabbi Ari Wasserman, who wrote some really phenomenal books about what people can talk about at the Shabbos table. And one of the things that we should talk about at the Shabbos table is hashkafa. And Ashkafe is, why are we here and what's important, okay? And therefore, if we do that, when we need to cut back, when we need to instill discipline, when we need to explain to our children why something that maybe mommy and Tati were able to afford till now, we're not going to anymore, we have to explain to our children because mommy and Tati have realized that these things are not important enough for the aggravation and the stress that it's been causing us. And we also want you to understand this so that when you get older, you will live a much happier carefree life and that you'll have menuchus and nefesh and not worry about a mortgage or a credit card that you can't afford. You have to be honest with children. My parents were very honest with me. Um, They told me that we couldn't afford. They were very, very honest about it. They They didn't protect me from the truth. We coddle our children. We think they can't handle the truth. What children cannot handle is watching parents stressed out, watching parents worried. And this anxiety, and they don't even know what it's about. They don't understand it. They think God forbid somebody's sick. They think God forbid something terrible is about to happen. And when they start to understand what it is and they understand where it's coming from, believe me, they're not interested. They're not interested in living in a a house that's full of stress and anxiety. So my parents did not protect me. They told me, Tati can't afford to buy you a new bike. We're going to buy you a used bike. And guess what? I never really felt deprived. I had a bike. Yes, I was somewhat envious of my friends that had brand new shiny bikes, but guess what? Here I am. I'm alive. I survived. Our children are more resilient than we think. They're more understanding than we think. And if not, with time, they will get older and mature, and they will too understand why Abba and Imam made those decisions.
0: But, R- Rav Naftali, we, we don't always risk our children thinking they're underprivileged, because especially when we live in communities that people are spending, either because they have the ability or because they are in debt and give off the perceived ability, our children are going to be thinking that they are underprivileged. So h- how do we get over that hurdle, or is maybe that uh, just a way
1: that we're going to have to live with it? This is Khenok 101. This is Khenok 101. How do you tell your child that he can't go out and eat a cheeseburger, one, you're driving down the highway and you pass passing McDonald's and a Burger King and he's hungry. Does he feel underprivileged that he can't eat a cheeseburger? Well, that's Chinuch 101. You would never let your child eat a cheeseburger. When a child wants to do crazy things that other kids are doing or listening to things that other kids are doing, of course they get a kick and scream and say, it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. But that's Chinuch. Chinuch is teaching a child right from wrong. And it's wrong. It's wrong to, to chase luxury after luxury. It's wrong to constantly get your children the latest and the greatest gadgets. You're destroying the child. Forget about what it's doing to your financial picture, but you're destroying the child. You're bringing up a spoiled brat. A child only knows, I want, I want, I want. But a child that expects a parent to be M'chanachtan. I don't know. Baruch Hashem, maybe I have magical children. My children never felt deprived when I couldn't afford and I didn't buy them because I couldn't, they didn't feel deprived. And now that I can and I still don't buy them, they still don't feel deprived. Interesting. I think it's important to teach them what's important. And if they don't understand it now, they'll understand it one day. Because think about it. If you give this child every indulgence that their friends are getting, then what are you setting the child up for? You're setting them up for financial disaster. Fiscal disaster when they get older, let alone narcissism and selfishness. So If we build
0: on that point, we've been talking about people who can't afford, but are affording and shouldn't afford, but it seems that those concepts that you're talking about would apply for those who can afford, and uh, maybe you're saying now they they shouldn't afford, or they shouldn't spend, for example, if we're talking about the uh, Uber luxury car or the top-end wedding and bar mitzvah and the like, because maybe that's going to have a negative trickle-down effect on the chinuch of their children. So what are your thoughts on somebody who can afford, certainly has the money and uh, does Want to indulge in proper things, mitzvahs, and the like, but uh, top end, high end. And uh, would you say that they should be careful about their spending as well, either because of the chinuch of the children or for
1: other reasons? There's many reasons why a person should engage in what the Chavos Halavos refers to as precious. Precious, the Chavos Halavos defines as withholding from something that one has the ability, the opportunity, and the has the money to engage in. That's what the Chodes begins Shire Precious with. Precious is an unbelievable way to live. I'm not talking about somebody who wears ragged clothing and lives on a mountain somewhere without running water. I'm talking about a person who learns to restrain himself from indulging in things and from, from expanding what he in, intakes into his life. Okay, each time we broaden our living standard, we raise our living standard, we are doing the opposite of precious. I know people who you cannot discern in any way their living standard changing, even though I know that their financial picture has gone up and up and up and up they reach a certain standard of living they are perfectly happy there and any more would be would be detracting from their life not adding and therefore they just stop and there's many amongst us that are, that live that way so again once you go forward a person has to understand if you were drinking i don't know $30 wine okay you bought yourself a bottle of $30 wine every shot us and this was your indulgence. And now you're in a higher income bracket. And now you go up to a $60 bottle. And then you go into to a $120 bottle. And now you're drinking a $250 bottle. You have to understand that the relative pleasure that you will get from that $250 bottle will be no different. No different than that $30 bottle because you will become accustomed to it. And this is a fact. This has nothing to do with Hashka'al. That once you get accustomed to a luxury, that luxury no longer delivers that benefit and therefore you need another one and a bigger one. So I always come back to the question of what's the point? What am I accomplishing? I'm not accomplishing anything. If I upgrade my car, I will feel good for about a week and then that will be my car. So the first and foremost thing is before we even get to the chinuch of our children, Maybe perhaps there are better things to do with money. Maybe perhaps there are eternal things to do with money, things that don't depreciate and stay here. Maybe we should look at money as an opportunity to buy ourselves much more eternity than we are buying ourselves right now. The second thing is, what are we telling our children? Uh, what are we? What are, what is the message to our children? What is Abba into? What makes Abba excited, right? What 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 gets him? Riled up. How much time does Abba spend picking out a car, picking out the seats, picking out the features? How much mind share does he have on these trivialities of life? Because to the child, that's the message. This is what's important. This is where Abba spends his time and his energy. I'm not going to get into the whole Be'n Adam part of this, of what we're doing to society around us. I'm just talking as a selfish individual. And saying, what is it doing for me? What is it doing for my children? The Benadam Khadere aspect, the concept of Arvos, has completely been lost on so many people. How much... Kina and Sinna and aggravation we're bringing to people around us as we keep raising and raising up the standards when other people can't afford it and other people are breaking their backs trying to keep up with us. Of course I could justify and say that's their problem. They don't have to keep up with me. Nobody forcing them to do anything. But the reality is is that's not what Arvis says. Arvis says that you have to take responsibility for what your actions are doing to other people. It's also an <laughs> a... It's a lot in the torah
0: it's also a din and sneeze to act modestly it's actually what you were saying before is it's a puzzle somebody who loves pleasure uh they're going to get uh, accustomed to it and it won't be pleasurable for them anymore they're going to have to up the ante it's uh, it's a puzzle that says ish have the lover of pleasure will be a man who lacks and the Malbim right. says exactly what you said that somebody who loves Simcha loves indulgences, they're gonna become dolted and they're gonna only have to up the ante because they're not gonna have simcha anymore when they're on they're on still that lower tier and they're gonna be required to increase their indulgences to maintain that level of uh of simcha. So that's why it says, of Simcha, the lover of pleasure, will be a man who lacks. So it's exactly what uh one list says. So, Rav Naftali, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's so much to learn and so much to implement and so much to think about. So, thank you so much for joining us.
1: My absolute pleasure, Ari We really have the capacity to turn this around. I really don't think that we're foregone. I really don't think that you know it's hopeless. It's not hopeless. It starts with individuals. Every individual that wakes up in the morning and says, can." I'm not doing this anymore, sets an example for so many other people that will emulate and follow them. People will say, if he or she can do it, I can do it as well. It starts with you. It starts with your family. It starts with your children. You have it. Yet Zahara wants us to believe that it's hopeless. He brings Yish into our lives, and he says, this is the way everybody else lives, and you don't have to live that way. And when you start to live a different life, others will notice. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Rav Naftali. Thank you so much. Oh, good. Cool. Take care.